Hello. Hey, how's it going? It is going great. I have been working my way through this book by Scott Erickson. It's a uh, an Advent devotional called uh, Honest Advent. I mentioned it the other day that I was going to buy it, and I did. He is an artist, and so every day, besides the the writing, there is a, a picture that he has done, and his art makes me think differently about Scripture. It brings the powerful theological ideas into the practical messiness of everyday life in this really amazing way that I love. And mm. so I am loving that. How are you doing? I am doing really well. I am enjoying this hashtag that we've got going on, the hashtag come Lord Jesus. I think mm. it has been a really good opportunity for me to connect with God in a different way this holiday season. And so I'm very thankful that our conversations just keep coming around to this and reminding us, reminding me to just pause and invite God back into this moment. And as you said last week, I think, you know, that God is doing the action. I am just paying attention to it. Mm. So, Which, speaking of... How are we going to make our way towards that hashtag in our conversation today? What's on your mind? <laughs> I know, right? We do keep landing on it as like the the, the thing that we keep coming back to kind of accidentally. Uh, 100%. So. Like that's what's funny to me is it's bizarrely unplanned. Three weeks in a row now, we've started with three different topics and landed there. So where are we starting today? Well... All right, so I want to start with the incarnation. I think you asked last week, like, if we could design a rhythm, a liturgy for the entire church community to follow, what things would we come back to? And when you talked about the birth of Jesus, when you talked about Christmas, you referred to it as the incarnation. And so I would love to unpack that. That's a big theological term with a lot of theological significance. And I think it would be fascinating to unpack what the incarnation means, not just the birth of Jesus, because for some reason, those evoke different things in me. I really want to focus on the theological question of what is the incarnation and why does it matter? What are your thoughts? Mm, that's fascinating. So restate this distinction for me. Thinking about the incarnation is different for you than thinking about the birth of Jesus. Is that what you said? Yeah. And I think because when I talk about the birth of Jesus, somehow or another, I'm thinking about the manger scene. I'm thinking about the actual history and the life of Jesus and the things that he did and the, the stories that the Gospels narrate. And so it's not entirely unconnected to my thoughts on the incarnation, but the incarnation suddenly puts it into a theological category for me and allows me to zoom out from the gospel narrative to a full canon, a full biblical view of the incarnation and what does it mean for salvation? What does it mean for God's purposes for the world? What does it mean about humanity? What does it mean about 
our ultimate state in in heaven, Jesus's ultimate state in heaven. All of these things, these big picture questions start to be asked for me in a way that the birth of Jesus somehow doesn't. Maybe I'm just unique in that way. No, I think you're right. I actually think there's three topics, or maybe there's a messy merging of two topics that obscures both of them. There is the profound theological topic of the incarnation, right? There is what does it mean from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22? Is that right? Oh, shoot. 21? Uh, Whatever it is. The last chapter of the Bible. There you Um, go. (laughs) um, Theologically, in the story of redemption, what is the incarnation all about it and what is actually happening in an uh, and so it's the, there's the intellectual understanding of it on the on the complete opposite side there is the very real mary's water broke at some point and you know there's this great picture in the scott erickson book i mentioned where You know, the Isaiah verses, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, but in a different order. I actually thought that was the right order, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, maybe I got the order right. Oh, that would be awesome. At least one reference to the Bible is correct today. That's a plus. (laughs) Um, So one of Erickson's pictures, and I love it, and it, I think, takes these two ideas and puts them together in a meaningful way, is... It is a picture of a baby who is being wiped, and the word mighty is on whatever is wiping him, and the word God is on him, and it is just this intentional juxtaposition of the profound, weighty, intellectual theology of the incarnation with the very weird, messy practicality of it that comes out in moments like when you have a live baby in your living nativity scene at church and the baby (laughs) won't shut up during the service, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) That is a profound juxtaposition of theology right there. Yes. Which I think you're hitting on exactly the tension that always exists in theology, right? There is the intellectual piece that I think is essential. I don't think we can neglect this at all. Absolutely, And not just because I'm in seminary and you're not agreeing just because you got an MDiv. There is a meaningful aspect to our spiritual walk when we understand the intellectual side. But it can never be divorced from actual history, actual real life. The here and now babies that spit up over your shirt and you now you forgot to pack another one and what are you going to do but wear spit up on your shirt the whole day or you know your kid got in a car accident and now you got to like rush out the door and go to the accident scene and all of the trauma around that right I, you know i'm sorry i'm just like these are various parenting stages i've been through here but mm-hmm. uh, like just real life real life so i think I love the balance that you have there between these two, because 
it's a balance I always want to strike in my life, and it's a balance I always want to strike on our podcast, where we encounter the theological side in order to benefit the real life side. These things have to be tied together. Yeah, absolutely. But we don't want to tie them together. One of the things I think that is challenging in the way that we try to live the middle ground often in, you called it the birth of Jesus, right? There's nothing wrong with the birth of Jesus, but using that language to symbolize what we normally think about. I think we come to a middle ground where we actually are attentive to neither. Um, mm. Whereas I think we're going to try to wrestle towards a middle ground that is attentive to both. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. And as I think about it, I'm, I'm thinking, because you can't do the intellectual side halfway. If you're going to sit down and study, right. you have to intentionally sit down and study. You have to learn. You have to engage the topics on its intellectual grounds. And only after you've done that can you synthesize it back into real life. And so by trying to strike a middle ground, you actually don't incorporate the study side because you never sat down to do the study. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the study side. Uh, what are what do you think of as the key essential? Like you have gone through several years of theological study, and now we are in the Christmas season. As you reflect back on all of that, what are some of the key pieces of thinking well about the incarnation? Man, I am so hesitant to answer that question because the second I put an answer out there, I feel like I'm neglecting three other answers that I think are equally important. Which I think is good. Like the answer today and the answer tomorrow are going to be different because the truth is so profound and we keep gazing deeply into it. We will keep catching different nuances and being awed by different elements of it, not because the truth is changing, but because our capacity to behold it is so limited that we're simply going to shift and grow and learn and appreciate different bits at different moments. Yeah, absolutely. And so where I am at with the incarnation right now is I'm really fascinated by the way in which God coming into our world and as the song says, he wraps our injured flesh around him, breathes our air and walks our sod. Long-awaited Holy Savior, welcome to our world. Uh, I think I might have messed up that last line. But I am so in awe of God becoming human. But not just becoming human, basically fulfilling the call of humanity. When we look at what does it mean to be human, Jesus embodies that. Jesus completes that. Jesus taught us how to be human in the truest sense of the word. And I think there's a lot of search in our world today for identity and a sense of uh, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing with life? 
how do I understand my own gender, my own self-identity? How do I grasp something solid about myself? And Jesus comes and and is the perfect human, is the model for humanity. But not just on a let me show you how to do this kind of idea, but let me let me confirm for the whole human race. Let me pave a path for humanity to do the things it was always intended to do, namely be God's vice regents, vice rulers on earth, and to image God in the world. And so Jesus comes and he does that, and he paves the way for us to be able to do the same thing and to reclaim our identity as God's vice regents on earth. And I'm so fascinated by that part of the incarnation and that reality for us that that's really what my head is spinning over. Mm. You know, the, the two things that I think of when I think about that are, first of all, the phrase kings and queens in Narnia always mm. comes to mind for me. I grew up with my imagination being baptized by Lewis's Narnia books and these four run-of-the-mill kids who are sucked into a world in which it turns out that they are kings and queens. And their discovery of that and their growth into those characters, they become who they are. Uh, in this fascinating way is a lot of what I think about on, on the one hand. So that's where my imagination goes. But my thinking actually shifts towards, even in my theological education, there was an interesting effort to almost categorize the two natures of Jesus, as if they were somehow oil and water existing within him semi-competitively. So... <laughs> When Jesus is raising the dead, is he doing that as God or man? When Jesus is feeding the 5,000, is that him acting as God or is that him acting as man? And one of the things that I find fascinating as you're describing that is that Jesus is the ultimate evidence that that is the wrong question because there's no competition between the two in him. Yeah, The fundamental nature of humanity is not to exist distinct from God, to exist separate from God, but to exist in partnership with God. Like, I just don't think Jesus would have liked that question. Mm. His response would have been, I'm doing what I see my father doing. What do you mean? Is it, is it the human me or the divine me? I'm, I'm just doing what I see my father doing. Yes. And... To stand with that authority, foundationally built upon that kind of intimacy, as a model for what does it mean to be human, I think you're right. Like, that is powerful. It is. And I, there is a concept in Eastern Orthodox theology, I'm forgetting the technical name, but the concept is not quite a deification of humanity, but a union of humanity with the Godhead. 
So it's not that humans become God, but humans become united with God, and that this is a part of salvation. And whether you go to that extent or not, I'm inclined to go with the participationist theology, where we are participating in God's acts on the world, in the world, and we are actively engaged in this process with God. But that union, in some sense, humanity and God have been somehow unified. Not that humanity has become God, but that we have been united with God. And I think Paul talks about this a lot. We've been united with Christ in his sufferings. We will also be united with him uh, in his death and resurrection. And so this union with God is part of our salvation story. And the fact that God could take on a human bodily existence elevates the status of humanity automatically and shows that humanity is of a substance that God can unite with it, which I Mm. think is a fascinating implication of the incarnation. Yeah, I would take slight umbrage with the with the phrase it elevates not because of what you mean but because of what that word might say it doesn't elevate so much as reveals because it was there all along it doesn't change anything about who we are yeah yeah Um, good good god created humanity from the beginning for this incarnational work whether it was going to have to be redemptive or not these are two, I grew up, again, I, my early theology, whenever I say I grew up, I do not mean the church I grew up in told me or my parents told me or something like that. I mean, my earlier theological thoughts were, and I grew up thinking the function of the incarnation was redemption. Mm, yes. And right? therefore, the only need for the incarnation was that mankind had sinned and needed to be saved. Not that the incarnation could potentially have been part of the plan regardless of our fall or not, that it could have a function even if the world had stayed perfect, God could still become a man in order to fulfill his purposes rather than simply to fix our problems. Mm -hmm. Yes. I recently encountered this very question, and though I'd never really thought about it before, I think I would have probably said that the incarnation was simply so that Jesus could be born in order to die for our sins, that the incarnation was an act, a pure act of salvation. Hmm. I don't now hold that position, having encountered this question recently. I would say that the incarnation was always part of God's plan, that it was meant as a self-expression, a self-revelation, a way of being in communion with his people. God, all throughout scripture, has been revealing himself to humanity in various ways over time and in different methods. And the culmination of that is for God to unite himself with human flesh and dwell among us on this earth. I think that was always God's plan. Yeah, because if it wasn't, Jesus got the short end of the stick, man. Right. I, I mean, think about this for a minute. Not just that he has to die like and rise from the dead, but he rises 
That is a small sacrifice compared to rising from the dead still in human form, ascending into heaven still in human form, and remaining for the forward future-looking sense of eternity still in human form. Right. Like, that is profoundly limiting if that was not the plan, if this vessel was not designed for that purpose. Yeah. And so, contrary to the picture you just painted there, all of a sudden we start getting an idea that Jesus might be happy about the idea that he is still in human form, right? And that the Godhead is pleased with this state of affairs. Yeah. That he created humanity for that moment. Yes. For that encounter. That that was the, that's the highlight of the whole plan. It's not just a band-aid or a fixing. If the incarnation was literally God's plan from the beginning and his purpose from the beginning, because it is what he wanted. Yes, exactly. I want to read you this quote. You talked about the fact that Jesus is still in bodily form. One of my favorite theologians is Michael Bird. He's an Australian uh, theologian and has this amazing sense of humor. And he writes and speaks with that sense of humor intact and brings a lot of levity to what is often a stuffy conversation. And so his book, Mm. Evangelical Theology, a big, huge, long, systematic theology book that is kind of heavy reading, but he breaks it up very nicely with some humor. And I think you're going to see that in this quote. I just, I love this quote of him talking about Jesus ascending in bodily form. So he says, he did not shed his human shell like someone taken off a gorilla suit and resume his pre-incarnate life, <laughs> right? Uh, just And resume his pre-incarnate life as a luminous and angelic being. No, he retains his glorified humanity for the rest of eternity. In other words, there is now a human at the helm of the universe. What is more, we worship an Aramaic-speaking, brown-skinned, scarred, and circumcised Jewish man at the Father's right hand. Ooh, that brings those two worlds together that we were talking about earlier. Doesn't it, though? Wow. So good. Right? That's where theology meets the nitty-gritty of life. Yes, Jesus was a brown-skinned, Jewish, circumcised man from Palestine in the first century. And that bodily form is what he retains to this day and part of who we worship. That is amazing. Man, talk about blissful ignorance. I am so sure that whoever performed that circumcision did not need to know whose circumcision it was. (laughs) Just be careful. (laughs) I thought we mentioned on last week's episode that we weren't going to talk about controversial topics. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's controversial. I think it's just awkward. (laughs) Uh, that's, That's very true. But... That's so good. Uh, okay, and is is Michael Bird the the guy that you 
got to talk to on your birthday? He is. So um, you have to tell this story. It's such a great story. My family, I was reading a number of books by Michael Byrd at the same time because they were assigned from various classes and he wrote, he's a prolific writer. I think the guy never steps away from his computer, but he, he wrote a number of great books and I was talking and quoting him very frequently. And my family was like, oh my gosh, you have such a man crush on Michael Bird. You need to like stop talking about him. And I was like, hey, I, I can't help it. He's got some good insights. So my wife, when she was thinking about my birthday present that year, she was like, I need to get him in touch with Michael Bird. So she like Facebook stalked him and sent him a message and said, hey, uh, would you be willing to meet with my husband, he has a bit of a man crush on you. I don't know what she said, but would you mind meeting up with him? And he responded like right away. And he's like, I'm never on Facebook. So it's a miracle that you caught me here. The better way to reach me is over here. But the short answer is, yeah, I'd love to. Let's set something up. And so for my birthday, like she scheduled a 30 minute Zoom meeting uh, where I could sit down and talk with Michael Bird and ask him any questions. And that was awesome. It was such a thoughtful gift, probably the most thoughtful gift I think she's ever done. And she's a gift master. So that's saying something. That's so cool. Yeah. That is just a great moment. It really is. It really is. So thanks for indulging me on this conversation. I know it's kind of theologically heavy, and but I hope... Like having opened up our thoughts beyond just the manger scene to what is the f- what are the full implications of the incarnation? I don't know. I hope that we can spin on that a little bit and and then start bringing it back into real life, because I'm finding myself at this moment going, okay, well then, how do I identify? with the reality that I am meant to be and I am saved to be a co-ruler united with the Godhead representing God's image here on earth. That to me is my next question, but I don't know that we can answer that on the podcast. That's too big of a question, but it's one I want to sit with. Yeah, I agree. I think in one of my seminary classes, my professor would say, please make sure that you include the RWCV, the real world cash value. Mm. And first of all, I want to highlight the fact that this question can be looked at. The idea of theologically wrestling with and meditating on the incarnation can be done from a number of different angles. The literary academic approach that we've been talking about is one way. I'm so glad I randomly decided to mention the Scott Erickson book at the beginning because his art is intentionally this exact kind of meditation on the theology of Jesus, but in a very different form, using images to wrestle with ideas rather than words to wrestle with ideas. And this is not a new thing for the church. The medieval cathedrals weren't just 
random buildings built to say, hey, here's how awesome we are. They were designed in painstaking detail to draw visible attention through art to the deepest theological truths that they could point to. And so I think of the fact that not everybody's going to pick up evangelical theology by Michael Byrd, and that's okay. But challenging ourselves to find our route to think and consider deeply these topics is really important. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm so thankful you mentioned art and its power to do or to influence some of this reflection. I think there's no substitute for study itself. But when it comes to reflection, sometimes you can reflect on a theological concept and keep it in the abstract. There's something Mm. emotionally evocative about art that helps take an abstract idea and humanize it, particularize it, give it some imagination and some personal spin. So I love that you're incorporating art into this conversation because I think it's an, if for me, it is an often neglected next step. And yeah, I th- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause as he's, as I'm going through this book, And I feel like I'm referencing it enough that I now have to go ask Erickson and get his permission since we're incessantly talking. I'm incessantly talking about it. But um, it is very clear that he has done some profound study. He didn't just paint some random pictures. There's constant references in this book, artistic references, not literary references, though both, to everything from Isaiah to Revelation, from prophecy to fulfillment. There's reference to Palestinian culture in the art. I mean, he has done a lot of the study that you're absolutely right is essential for good theology. He just has found a different way to express it. Yeah, which is so rich. I love, I mean, sometimes I think the church or culture in general pits intellectualism and art against one another. Like you're either a creative or you're an intellectual and these things Mm. can't coexist in some imaginations or some conceptions. And I think that's false. And I think that the art that you're describing highlights the fact that that's false. You really can creatively express the truths that you have deeply come to know. Yeah, so good. You know, and and I do want to turn this around to our audience. You know, you highlighted one particular facet of the incarnation that captures you and captures you in this moment. If I were to ask you a year from now, you might have a different answer. I want to turn this to our audience And first of all, challenge them to think deeply about the incarnation. Go to the birth narratives in the Gospels. Let those lead you to the prophecies from the Old Testament. Whatever it takes. But what 
aspect of the incarnation captures you the most right now? What is it about God becoming human that catches your heart, catches your imagination, makes you wonder, makes you worship? We really want to hear that because what you're thinking about would enrich our experience and thoughts about the incarnation. And when you think about this idea that Josh brought up about being vice regents, kings on earth, representatives of God, what does it look like to live out of that reality? We would love to hear that too as we continue to wrestle forward with those thoughts. So please, please, on social media, Facebook, Instagram, please comment on on today's post. If you happen to be listening to this and it is a different time of year or whatever, just go to On the Phone with Josh on Facebook or Instagram. Comment, even if it's the wrong post. We don't care. We just want to hear from you. Uh, We would love to hear your thoughts about this. We absolutely would. I... Yes, please expand the conversation. And I also want to put out the invitation. We did not accidentally come back to this, the hashtag come Lord Jesus, but the invitation is still out there nonetheless. Please take a picture of your life, take a snapshot of your Christmas experience, and post it with the hashtag come Lord Jesus. We would love to follow that hashtag along with you and see the ways that you are inviting God to step forward into this time of year. Yes, I, I just, exactly. Yes. Please keep those posts coming. Yeah, do it. So, Josh from Missouri, I would love to hear what else you've been thinking about. Absolutely. Well, you know, I have been restarting a book that I have started several times, and it is a book that so often it stirs me in the first couple of pages so much that I end up with a lot to think about, put the book down, think about those thoughts. It's a book I've quoted hundreds and hundreds of times and never finished. Uh, It's Eugene Peterson's The Contemplative Pastor, Returning to the Art of Spiritual Direction, and it captures who I want to be and my heart so well. And here's the quote that captured me this particular time as I've been reading it again, or restarting it, I should say. Peterson says, how can I lead people into the quiet place beside the still waters if I am in perpetual motion? How can I persuade a person to live by faith and not by works if I have to juggle my schedule constantly to make everything fit into place? Mm, that's so good. I don't even want to say anything. I just need to think about that. Man, you um, you mentioned spiritual direction. And just a couple of months ago, I started going to a spiritual director. It's something I've wanted to do for a lot of years and finally got the nudge to do it. And boy, it's been so, so good. But in my last spiritual direction, he guided me through a Lectio Divina, as you highlighted last week, that was talking about Jesus's words of, come to me all who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
And that learn from me during that Lectio Divina was speaking to me about Jesus's speed of life, that slowing down, that Jesus was not in constant motion. I think there is a book out there or a scholar that talks about the speed of Jesus being about three miles an hour because he walked everywhere he went. And that's about how fast a human walks. And so three miles an hour, I do not go three miles an hour in my life. But that quote that you gave as well is is just inviting a much slower pace. Yeah. And ooh, I would love some time to dig into. I mean, the first couple chapters I could talk for hours about, but that would make for a very long conversation and a very long episode. So let me transition to what are you thinking about? Uh, yeah, well, I would love to talk about the contemplative pastor sometime. I think that would make a great episode. Um, what am I thinking about? So I've been reading and rereading 1 Corinthians 13 over the last mm. few weeks. And I've this is, this is funny because I know a lot of people love this chapter. Uh, no, no pun intended. Um, but a lot of people really connect with this chapter. And though I understand the love is patient, love is kind, all of that stuff, that in the very heart of the chapter, I have a hard time connecting it fully to what comes immediately prior to it and immediately after. And mm. I was trying, I just feel like it's a jumbled mess when you read the whole chapter all in one go. And I don't understand how it all fits together. So the other day I was sitting down to reread it and I thought, you know what? I'm going to not read it in my English translation. I am going to go to the Greek and I'm going to read it in Greek. And boy, that was so, so helpful. It was a moment where some of the things that I didn't understand how they went together suddenly came in stark relief because our English translations are using a contextual translation of words that actually get repeated multiple times in the passage. But each time it comes up, the English translators have chosen to contextualize its use a little bit. And so you miss the fact that it's the same word over and over and over. And particularly at the latter part of the chapter where it talks about where there are prophecies there will cease, where there are tongues they will be stilled. Uh, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child, I did stuff like a child. But when I grew up, I put childish ways behind me. What is obscured in those translations is the fact that katargeo is the Greek word that is used every single time. So these things ceased, or these things were nullified, or whatever. Um, so these things ceased, and these things ceased. And when I grew up, I ceased doing childish things. I ceased, I ceased, I ceased. These things are all going to come to an end. The only thing left, faith, hope, and love. And even that, I was confused because I'm like, what do you mean faith, hope, and love? You haven't even referenced faith, hope, and love. This is the love chapter. And where where do you get faith, hope, and love? Well, earlier in the chapter where it says love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, love obviously is there and believes all things 
is the Greek word pistis, for faith. So it could conceivably be translated, faiths all things and hopes all things. So faith, hope, and love are in the chapter. They just get obscured by the English translation. And so when it comes back Mm. to it, these things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. All of a sudden, there's like a unity to this chapter that I was really, really struggling with. So um, I thought I would share. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. That's so good. You know, we said last week that uh, we transition out of which Josh awkwardly. I, I got to say, we also transition into which Josh very awkwardly because so often we have to go from these profound thoughts about scripture to so which Josh has never changed a tire on a bike. <laughs> and that's just a complicated transition. But uh, there it is, folks. Last <laughs> In week, other news, we. We exactly right. I feel like uh, a a news commentator that's trying to go from like, you know, there's a giant outbreak of whatever in Africa. And in other news, there's 87 people crying about the fact that Radio Shack is no longer a real thing. Right. Right. You know, it's like, you know, okay. So which Josh has never actually successfully changed a bike tire? That would be me. Yes, yes it is. Despite all my mountain biking, and this is coming up right now because I need to finish uh, changing my daughter's bike tire that popped the other day. So this will only be true for about another 24 to 48 hours. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah, it's funny that you have never changed a bike tire. In fourth grade, our school... I went to a, a private Christian school, uh, very small, and they could do all these kind of crazy fun things. And one of the things that they did, I think it was springtime, at least it was nice weather, and they they put on a bike fair. And so you you brought your bikes to school that day, and you like had slalom races, or you had races around the parking lot. And then some of us were tasked with putting on various bike-related workshops for the other students. And I think I was in fourth grade. I don't know, somewhere around there. And I remember, I'm like, oh, I'm going to teach everybody how to change a tire on their bike. And so that was my contribution to the bike fair that year. So, you know, you just missed out. You were at the wrong school. Oh, man. See, that's the problem right there. I knew I had a (laughs) fundamental flaw in my entire life history that explained everything that was wrong with me. And I suspect that might be it. You may have unearthed it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably something you should talk with your parents about over Christmas, you know, and accuse yes, them. They of should have shipped me back and things. forth to wherever that silly place is in Illinois that has the ketchup bottle uh, for high school. Oh, <laughs> no, no, this is no, this is not there. This is that. This is boring Oregon, isn't it? Uh, well, no, though I grew up in Boring for the first couple of years of my life. This was actually in Portland. Most Man, of you my, moved a lot. I, yeah, I did. I did. Uh, but yeah. If my parents are listening to this, they are probably listening to it in the house I was brought home from the hospital in. They have never moved. And That's so whenever amazing. people move, it's weird to me. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, All thanks right. for the good conversation and good luck changing your bike tire. Are we on for next week? Absolutely. All right. I'll talk to you then. Bye.
Chao. 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 Chao.